Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to talk with um, Reverend Robert Sirico. He is the author of The Economics of the Parables, the book published by Regnery. It's really a fascinating look at the familiar parables, and I think there are 15 of them in the book. Um, and looking at the economics aspect of each one of them. He is uh, one of the co-founders of the Acton Institute. We'll tell you more about that when he joins us in the second hour of today's program. Well, breaking news, a federal judge in Louisiana has blocked the Biden administration from ending the expulsion of illegal immigrants under Title 42 less than a month before the pandemic era public health measure was set to end. Well, drawn from the Public Health Act of 1944, the measure allowed the U.S. to summarily expel immigrants who were deemed to pose a risk to public health. During the coronavirus pandemic, it was used by the Trump and Biden administration to remove tens of thousands coming to the country uh, and to... um, uh, move the the immigrants outside the normal deportation process, which was lengthy. Well, the order is a temporary injunction issued as part of a lawsuit by Louisiana, Arizona, and Missouri against the administration, which had planned to end Title 42's immigration use on May the 23rd. So again, a federal judge has blocked the president from ending Title 42, as was announced uh, his intention in the uh, in the near term. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court justices spun more than a dozen hypothetical prayer scenarios during an oral arguments in Kennedy versus Bremerton School District on Monday. The justices peppered lawyers with possible scenarios and questions about coercing high school players into prayer. Well, today the court heard the case in which a high school football coach was fired for silently praying on the field after games. Most of the justices seemed favorable to the coach and his arguments, but until a decision is actually issued, you don't really know what that outcome will be. Uh, They asked the lawyer, arguing for their respective sides, if a teacher could pray before class or after, silently or out loud, in a clear voice or a low mumble. They asked if coaches could pray on the sidelines, in a press box or a huddle, if they could pray with a, a prefatory statement that player participation wasn't required. Or with the sign of the cross, the words of our father or hands lifted high. Could they pray with a crowd into a mic, into a camera with a group of players gathered around or if no one was there and they were alone? Well, Justice Stephen Breyer, he pointed uh, uh, pointing rather out that the court has ruled on prayer in school several times before, said this doesn't. Uh, seem like a, a new problem. It seems like a line drawing problem. And then one of the justices even asked about literal lines drawn on the ground. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she wanted to know why Washington State High School coach Joseph Kennedy insisted on praying in the center of the field at the 50 yard line. He had to thank God, she said. But why there? Well, the real line the court was trying to find, though, wasn't the It wasn't marked with field paint. The justices tried to push the lawyers and each other to agree to um, a point where prayers protected by the First Amendment could be separated from prayers prohibited by the protections of the First Amendment. So a very fine line. Everyone agreed that the coach has a right to pray, but only as an individual and not as a representative of the public school and not in a way that could coerce students into the religious practice. Now, you're not disputing the right of the school district to discipline Coach Kennedy if you were praying during the post-game talk, that the school can discipline him for that. 
Justice Elena Kagan asked Kennedy's lawyer, Paul DeClement. Uh, That's right, Clement said, because it would be government speech. Richard uh, Katsky, the the attorney representing the suburban Seattle school district, argued that prayers would be mistaken for official policy since the coach was on duty and that even if they were personal, they could still be coercive. Students feel the pressure to please the coach, he said, and they know the coaches uh, make critical decisions about playing time that can affect college applications, scholarships and the rest of the students lives. The coach is an amazingly powerful figure with immense coercive authority, he said. The students know you have to stay in the good graces of the coaches, end quote. Well, the justices debated whether the praying coach was really coercing his students. Just as Brett Kavanaugh pointed out, there was no evidence that the coach preferred students who joined him at the 50-yard line, nor any effort to get all the players to join. This wasn't huddle up team, which is a common coach phrase, but this wasn't that, Kavanaugh said. No, Katsky said, but does the coach have to say that for the students to miss that? Well, according to Clement, again, one of the attorneys, however, when the school district disciplined the coach, it noted that sometimes he prayed surrounded by students and sometimes no one joined him. The students clearly didn't feel coerced, he argued. The school just didn't like public prayers. There's no evidence of coercion contemporaneously, he said. There's no evidence of coercion in his record. In this record, either the sole basis for the government's action was religion. Well, the Supreme Court has consistently sided with religious liberty advocates in recent years, and the six to three conservative majority is widely seen as sympathetic to religious plaintiffs. Some recent cases have also won unanimous or near unanimous backing for the, from the divided court. Last year, all of the justices sided with a Catholic adoption agency that argued it should not be required to place children with same sex couples. This year, the court ruled eight to one for a death row inmate who wanted his pastor to lay hands on him at the time of his death. Well, Liberty Council filed an amicus brief in Kennedy versus Bremerton School District in support of Coach Joe Kennedy, an 18-year Marine veteran. On January 18th, the Liberty Council presented oral arguments in the case, uh, Shurtiff versus City of Boston. And in that case, like in Coach Kennedy's case, the government argued that what otherwise appears to be private speech is government speech. Following the argument in Shurtiff, It appeared clear that the justices were not sympathetic to the argument that the government could claim private speech is uh, actively uh, government speech and thereby censor it. Although not as clear in today's arguments involving Coach Kennedy, it appears the justices were skeptical of the school district's claim that Coach Kennedy's speech was government speech. Well, the high court focused on two questions, whether a public school employee who says a brief quiet prayer by himself while at school and visible to students is engaged in government speech that lacks any First Amendment protection and whether assuming that such religious expression is private and protected by free speech and free exercise clauses, the Establishment Clause nevertheless compels public schools to prohibit it. And it will... um uh, be decided upon by the Supreme Court, expected sometime, if not in the summer, sometime in the fall. A very significant um, case heard by the Supreme Court earlier today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about what happened uh, when a couple of U.S. officials met with the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. We're talking about the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, Um, And his associate will tell you more details about what was said and what it might mean moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. Again, coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Defense Secretary Austin said, we believe that Ukrainians can win if they have the right equipment, the right support. Now, this is uh, the first time that the word win has been used. Questions have been asked whether or not the United States actually wants Ukraine to win as opposed to simply survive. But the defense secretary in um, uh, Ukraine made that statement. Well, as the United States continues to pump billions of dollars in security assistance into Ukraine, the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, expressed the belief that Ukrainians can win their fight with Russian aggressors. In terms of our ability to win, the first step in winning is believing that you can win, Austin told a news conference in Poland uh, earlier today. That's one day after he and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and other government officials in Kiev. Rather interesting, they posed for a photograph, the three of them, and the two American uh, dignitaries, the Secretary of State um, and the uh, uh, Defense Secretary, were grinning, flanking uh, Zelensky on either side. President Zelensky had a very somber expression on his face. It was face. It was a very telling photograph. But he went on to say, and I'm referring to the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and so they believe that they can win. We believe that they can win if they have the right equipment, the right support. And we're going to do everything we can, continue to do everything we can to ensure that that gets there. So we're engaging with the Minister of Defense. And as this fight uh, evolves, their needs will change. So as those needs change, we'd like to be one step ahead but we're going to be responsive to what they believe they need, end quote. Well, a, porter at, a reporter asked uh, Austin how the U.S. is tracking all of the anti-tank stingers and anti-aircraft javelins and other sensitive weapons it is sending to Ukraine. We're seeing more and more imagery of those weapons falling into the hands of Russian-backed forces in Donbass. Do you have a plan to track those weapons, the reporter asked. In terms of our ability to track the weapons that are going in, Uh, As you know, we don't have any forces on the ground, so that's difficult for us to do, Austin replied. We did have a very good discussion with both the president, the Ministry of Defense, of a necessity to make sure that those weapons are tracked and as best possible to make sure that they're protected from falling into the hands of adversaries. Now, when you're in a fight, as you know, if a specific battle is lost, then you have less control over the ability to control items. But they are focused on this uh, issue and they know we are concerned about it and will continue to engage in quote asked about U.S. goals for success in Ukraine. Austin said, uh, we want to see Ukraine remain a sovereign country, a democratic country able to protect its sovereignty, sovereign territory. Well, Austin also explained his vision for Russia's future. Now we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. It has already lost a lot of military capability, a lot of its troops, quite frankly. And we want to see them not have the the capability, rather, to very quickly reproduce that capacity. We want to see the international community more united, especially NATO, and we're seeing that, and that's based upon the hard work of, number one, President Biden, but also our allies and partners who have willingly leaned into this with us as we've imposed sanctions, as we've moved very rapidly to demonstrate that we're going to defend every inch of NATO, end quote. Well, Austin is hosting 
a meeting tonight with other NATO defense ministers in Ramstein Air Base in Germany to discuss the continued flow of security assistance to Ukraine. And again, that very interesting picture of the two Americans with broad smiles on their face flanking uh, the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, from they were in Kiev from Ukraine, who has a very somber expression on his face, recognizing that his very life hangs in the balance. And again, the U.S. Defense Secretary Austin said Russia's military capabilities should be degraded after he and Secretary of State Blinken met with Ukraine's president um, in in Kiev. Uh, Blinken also said Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine hasn't ended, but U.S. diplomats are going back into the country. Well, that announcement follows the visit on Sunday to Ukraine by the secretaries of state and defense um, who met with the president. In terms of the embassy, we will have American diplomats back in Ukraine starting next week, Blinken told a news conference on Monday following the Sunday visit. Those diplomats will start out in the western city of Lviv. Uh, which is about 40 miles east of the border of Poland. They'll then start the process of looking at how we actually reopen the embassy itself in Kiev, uh, Blinken said. And I think that will uh, take place over a couple of weeks. Um, that would be my expectation. We're doing it deliberately. We're doing it carefully. We're doing with uh, the security of our personnel first and foremost in mind. But we're doing it, sending, I suppose, a very loud message to uh, the Russian President Vladimir um, Putin. Well, Blinken also announced that President Biden will nominate a new ambassador to Ukraine, namely Bridget Brink, who currently serves as U.S. ambassador to Slovakia. Uh, Blinken said Brink is uh, deeply experienced in the region and will be a very strong representative for the United States in Ukraine. At the same news conference in Poland, Blinken said the leaders discussed where the war goes from here. With the success that Ukraine has had, it's also true that Russia continues to try to brutalize parts of the country. And the death and destruction that we continue to see is horrific. But Ukrainians are standing up. They're standing strong and they're doing what they uh, what they can to support themselves. Uh, and we have coordinated literally uh, with them and others around the world. The strategy that we put in place, massive support for Ukraine, massive pressures against Russia, solidarity with more than 30 countries engaged in these efforts of having real results. And we're seeing that when it comes to Russia, war arms, Russia is failing. Ukraine is succeeding. Now, that's a pretty bold statement uh, given what's coming and what many are predicting is the, the next planned attack and movement forward for the Russians. But Mr. Blinken uh, made the point that they fully expect that Ukraine can succeed so much so that the United States is uh, planning to um, re- return U.S. diplomats back into Ukraine starting next week. Well, Russia has warned the West against um, again, rather, that it considers weapons to the Ukraine armed forces To be legitimate targets, the latest threat coming on the day the president announced an additional $800 million in increasingly tailored security assistance to Ukraine. Well, senior Russian officials have made similar statements periodically since the uh, Russian invasion began in late February. And the most recent came from Sergei Koshalev, deputy director of the foreign ministry's North American division. Novosti quoted him as saying during a ministry roundtable on the crisis in U.S.-Russia relations that Moscow will view U.S. and NATO arms convoys as legitimate targets if they enter Ukrainian territory. 
We are increasingly alarmed by the mushrooming statements by the U.S. administration about their intention to continue massive deliveries of weapons and military equipment for the armed forces of Ukraine, despite the hopeless situation of their key uh, Kiev counterparts. Uh, Their calculation is clear to slow down our special operations and inflict maximum damage on Russian air forces and armed forces, he said, using the Kremlin's euphemistic term for the invasion. Announcing the latest package of military aid on Thursday, the president said we're sending it directly to the front lines of freedom, to the fearless and skilled Ukrainian fighters who are standing in the breach. According to the Pentagon, the eighth drawdown package includes 72 M777 155 millimeter howitzers, 144,000 artillery rounds for the howitzers and 72 tactical vehicles to tow the artillery pieces with an attack range of 20 miles. Howitzers are said to be well suited for the type of combat expected to take place now that Russia has shifted the focus of its assault on the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, where the territory is more open. Meanwhile, and in other news, a New York judge A New York Supreme Court judge held former President Donald Trump in civil contempt on Monday, ordering him to pay $10,000 every day until he fully complies with New York Attorney General Letitia James subpoena in her investigation of the Trump organization. James has been seeking various financial records after the former president's attorney, Michael Cohen, told Congress that Trump had exaggerated the values of various assets on statements in order to get more advantages, uh, advantageous terms for loans and for tax purposes. Earlier in the month, her office requested the daily fines and argued that Trump should be held in contempt for failing to meet a March 31st deadline to turn over documents. The president's attorney, Alina Haba, argued that any materials that Trump had not turned over were in the possession of the Trump organization, not Trump personally. Ultimately, the judge, Arthur Ingerin, he ruled that Trump had not conducted a proper search for the documents and was thus not in compliance with the previous court order from February. Uh, the judge uh, ruled that Trump failed to comply and issued a daily, that's daily, $10,000 fine until he complies with the attorney general. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. In the second hour, we'll hear from Reverend Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. He is the founder of the Acton Institute and has written a book on the parables and the economic lessons we can learn from about 15 of them. So that's coming up in our second hour. Well, Twitter and Elon Musk have struck a deal for a takeover. The $44 billion deal marks the close of a dramatic courtship of a sort and a pretty sharp change of heart at the social media network. Well, Twitter Inc. on Monday accepted Elon Musk's bid to take over the company, given the world's richest man control over the influential social media network, where he's also among its most powerful users. The deal marks the close of a dramatic courtship and a a pretty sharp change where many executives and board members initially opposed Mr. Musk's takeover approach. Well, the deal has polarized Twitter employees, users and regulators over the power uh, tech giants wield in determining the parameters of acceptable discourse on the Internet and how those companies enforce their rules. Well, the two sides worked through the night to hash out a deal. 
Earlier on Monday, the Wall Street Journal reported Twitter and Mr. Musk had reached an agreement to the value of Twitter at $44 billion. Now think about that for a moment. $44 billion. Well, the takeover, if it goes through, would mark one of the biggest acquisitions in the tech history and will likely have global repercussions for years to come related to how billions of people use social media. Now, Mr. Musk, who's also chief executive of Tesla and Space Exploration Technologies, has to find a way to balance his commitment to less moderation with the business needs of a company that struggle to reconcile freewheeling conversation with content that appeals to advertisers. Well, on Monday, after the Journal uh, reported that the deal was close, uh, Mr. Musk tweeted to indicate that he wants the platform to remain a destination for wide-ranging discourse and disagreement. I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that's what a free speech um, platform means, he wrote. Well, the San Francisco-based social media company had been expected to rebuff the offer, which Mr. Musk made on the 14th of April without saying how he would pay for it. Twitter, a day after the unsolicited call, adopted a so-called poison pill designed to make it more uh, difficult for Mr. Musk to reach more than a 15% stake in the company. Well, Twitter, Twitter rather changed its posture after Mr. Musk detailed elements of his financing plan for the takeover. And on the 21st, he said that he had $46.5 billion in funding lined up. Well, Twitter shares uh, rose sharply. The company executives opened the door to negotiations. Twitter shares were ahead more than 5% in the afternoon trading on Monday. Well, the potential turnabout on Twitter parts from uh, part comes from or rather after Mr. Musk met privately Friday with several shareholders of the company to extol the virtues of his proposal while repeating that the board has a yes or no decision to make. People familiar with the discussion said, well, Mr. Musk, with over 82 million Twitter followers, has long used the platform to pronounce his views on everything from space travel to cryptocurrencies. In January, he started buying Twitter stock, becoming the single largest individual investor with more than 9% stake by April. Well, he has previously used Twitter to escalate a conflict with the Securities and Exchange Commission after the agency opened a probe into some of his recent stock sales. And he often blasts his critics on the social network. Uh, Twitter, at the beginning of the month, uh, invited Mr. Musk to join its board, which would have uh, prevented him from owning more than 14.9% of the company's stock. Mr. Musk initially agreed and then rejected the offer. Twitter has already embarked on a turnaround plan after a fight with activist Elliott Management Corporation about two years ago. Twitter said a little over a year ago they, uh, that it would work to at least double its revenue, $7.5 billion by the end of 2023, and reach at least $315 million so-called monetizable daily active users at that time. Well, Mr. Musk's proposed changes for the platform include softening its stance on content moderation, creating an edit feature for tweets, uh, making Twitter's algorithm open source, uh, which would allow people outside the company to view it and suggest changes and relying less on advertising, among other ideas. Mr. Musk is a self-described free speech abolitionist and... Um, said that it uh, in recent interview um, at a TED conference that he sees Twitter as the de facto town square. Twitter should 
uh, be more cautious when deciding to take down tweets or permanently ban users' accounts, Mr. Musk said, pointing to temporary suspensions as a better solution. Mr. Musk said he also wants the platform to be more transparent when it takes actions that amplifies or reduces a tweet's reach. He said he wasn't certain how some of those ideas would be implemented, but... Consider them a priority. Twitter has spent years advocating for healthier discourse on its platform and adding content moderation, arguing at least in part that it's good for business. The company also has introduced new features that have been gaining some traction for users, including Twitter's Spaces, uh, which allows people to host live audio conversations with each other within the platform. Well, Mr. Musk has said that he wants Twitter to rely less on advertising, which provided roughly 90 percent of its revenue last year and shift its business model more toward subscriptions. The platform currently offers a subscription based service called Twitter Blue, which gives customers premium features like undo tweet for two ninety nine a month. He suggests removing all ads on Twitter as part of the subscription offering. Mr. Musk also floated the idea of cutting staff shuttering the company's San Francisco headquarters building and not giving the board of directors salary. Uh, The latter could save roughly $3 million a year alone. His other proposed changes for Twitter, including uh, rather include trying to stop spam and scam bots and allowing for longer tweets. The current limit is 280 characters. On Thursday, Twitter is scheduled to announce its first quarter Earnings. And by the way, there was a lot of speculation about whether or not former President Trump would return to Twitter, from which he is now banned under the new uh, leadership. And he announced earlier today that, no, he does not intend to do that. Of course, that would undermine his own effort to create a rival. Um, By the way, um, Elon Musk took to Twitter to explain his view of what free speech actually means uh, which, again, gives some um, some indication of what one might expect. And this would, of course, this Twitter purchase, if it goes through, would elevate Elon Musk to new media mogul status. Um, Forty five billion dollars. Well, in other news, the world's largest library association has selected a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian to serve as its president. That's how she describes herself. Emily Drabinsky was selected in as the 2023 to 24 president of the American Library Association on the 13th, according to a press release, she's currently serving as an interim chief librarian at the Graduate Center of the City of New York. I just cannot believe that a Marxist lesbian who believes that collective power is possible to build and can be wielded for a better world is the president elect of the library, she tweeted. I am so excited for what we will do together solidarity and my mom is so proud i love you mom end quote well as part of her vision of ala drabinsky said that the consequences of decades of unchecked climate change class war white supremacy and imperialism have led us here but argued for change through collective power and the use of public goods like the library according to her personal website thank you for your confidence and support of my vision for the ala and your role in this vision she said according to the press release We have a lot of work ahead to build collective power for the public good. I can't wait to get started with all of you. End quote. Well, parents across the uh, the country have protested school library books that they believe are inappropriate and pornographic. While many critics, teachers and school administrators have pushed back on the protests as an attempt at book burning. 
Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, was one of uh, Dobrinsky's endorsers, according to her website. In the face of increasing challenges to school library books and teachers curricula, we need a strong American Library Association defending free inquiry and our shared pursuit of good public. Uh, for the good of the public, Emily Durbinsky knows how to organize and mobilize on behalf of library workers and our communities. Well, Durbinsky and the American Library Association um, did not comment for further clarification on steps that will be taken, but that will become abundantly clear sooner rather than later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're looking forward to a conversation with uh, Reverend Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. The book is... Um, available to be ordered at this point. It's not yet uh, out. Uh, Regnery Gateway. We'll give you more details in a bit. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a high-level meeting, U.S. diplomats will return to Ukraine this week and the U.S. will announce more military aid to Ukraine after a high-profile meeting took place between Secretary Anthony Blinken, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and others in Kiev yesterday. Secretary Mayorkas is under fire. Top House Republicans are doubling down on their criticism of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as the border crisis escalates. And the son of the polygamous cult leader Warren Jeffs has spoken out about his time as part of a cult, saying we were brainwashed. Wendell Jeff, uh, Jeff, Jeffs um, uh, has chosen to come forward for a true crime documentary, Preaching Evil. Trey Gowdy examined the media's reaction to the mask mandate, saying Congress's abdication to the CDC forced a federal judge to determine the national policy. And offering an inflationary minimum wage, a Democratic Socialist candidate for Congress in Washington state is proposing a $30 minimum wage. Senator Elizabeth Warren says all Democrats supported comprehensive immigration reform and were still working out details. Alabama Lieutenant Governor Will Amesworth argue that states have to step up to protect the southern border because of President Biden's policies. And questioning Biden's meetings, Peter Schweitzer said the Biden's secrecy surrounding who he met with in his home state is hugely important evidence in the scandal involving his son, Hunter. At least he speculates in that direction. The U.S. Supreme Court heard the case of high school football coach Joe Kennedy banned from his job for praying silently at the 50-yard line at the end of games. Kelly Shackelford warns that teachers and coaches play an essential role in our country, yet their intangible influence may be lost if we fail to protect their civil rights. Jeremiah Mostetler, he reminds that many members of Congress are using this month to advocate for second chances. Jason Blessing points out that since the Ukraine invasion, the Biden administration has escalated warnings about likely Russian cyber attacks here in America. President Zelensky met with uh, representatives from the United States, the Secretary of State and Defense, an advisor to the Ukrainian president, says the U.S. Secretaries of State and Defense are meeting with the Ukrainian leader and that they were encouraged by the prospect. The Washington Post reports that the Russian military reported hitting 423 Ukrainian targets overnight, including fortified positions and troop concentrations while its warplanes destroyed 26 Ukrainian military sites, including an explosives factory and several artillery depots. 
Most of Sunday fighting focused on the Donbass region, where Ukrainian forces are concentrated and where Moscow-backed separatists control some territory before the war. Since failing to uh, capture Kiev, the Russians are aiming to gain full control over the eastern industrial heartland. Town Hall reports that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been calling on President Biden to meet with him in Ukraine. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson did so earlier this month. Well, ICE is preparing for record levels of migrants as Title 42 comes to an end. But as I announced at the top of the program today, a judge has put a stay on the administration's plans to lift Title 42. So this is still in play. Immigration and Customs Enforcement was preparing for an historic surge of migrants across the U.S.-Mexico border, with the number of those arriving anticipated to triple. This comes as the administration had planned to end Title 42, a provision that allowed Border Patrol agents to deny entry and expel migrants to stop the spread of COVID. The policy will end, or they intended for it to end, on the 23rd of May, uh, after it was cut in, uh, put in place rather by the former president, Donald Trump, as at the onset of the pandemic. But again, a judge, a federal judge, Supreme Court. Uh, well, I think it was just federal judge. Get that right. Um, announced that it was um, going to be stayed. Uh, several states had sued for that purpose. Fox News reports that there were more than two hundred and twenty one thousand migrant encounters at the border in March. And the CBP has been encountering about 7,000 a day. DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, has said it has been planning for up to 18,000 migrants a day. John Kerry announced that uh, natural gas is in its final 10 years. Well, from the story, the president's climate envoy, John Kerry, says he's putting the natural gas industry on notice, suggesting it has a decade at most to solve Uh, for the emissions that are driving the Earth's temperature dangerously high. We have to put the industry on notice. You've got six years, eight years, no more than 10 years or so, within which you've got to come up with a means by which you're going to capture. And if you're not capturing, then you have to deploy alternative sources of energy. Well, that's a quote. Kerry left open the possibility that the industry exists as is, although with the capability to fully capture emissions, including carbon dioxide and the shorter lasting but more potent methane emissions. The Wall Street Journal weighed in. Mr. Kerry knows that the technologies that capture CO2 emissions are a long way from being uh, scalpable. He also knows that no one will invest in uh, building new pipelines if gas is time limited to less than a decade. And he should also know that fossil fuels can't be replaced in the next decade since the batteries and clean hydrogen that would be needed to do so will require technological breakthroughs. Natural gas prices have shot up in recent months because production isn't keeping pace with demand as the economy continues to recover and coal plants shut down. Political opposition to new pipelines is constraining U.S. production. Without more pipelines, U.S. energy prices will increase, which, based on how the president campaigned, is by design. In a warning from teachers union leader Randy Weingarten on state's efforts to involve parents, warns this is the way in which wars start. Really? Which war was that? Anyway, Weingarten accused GOP officials in states such as Florida and Texas of falsely portraying some teachers and administrators as indoctrinating kids amid spiraling school culture battles on issues including critical race theory and gender identity. This is propaganda, she says. This is misinformation. This is the way in which wars start. 
This is uh, the way in which hatred starts. The union boss rejected the notion that teachers are surreptitiously leading public school kids down predetermined ideological paths. We're not indoctrinating, she said. We're not grooming. Uh, What we're doing is making sure we educate kids. We keep them safe. We keep them welcome. We teach them how to think, not what to think. Huh. Well, uh, Town Hall again weighs in, dubbed by critics as the don't say gay bill, despite there being no mention of, uh, of the word in the ban. House Bill 1557 also allows parents to access their children's education and health records and requires schools to notify parents of changes to their child's mental, physical or emotional well-being. This is apparently how wars start. Well, the bill exempts schools from disclosing information to parents if a reasonable, prudent person would be concerned that doing so could result in abuse, abandonment or neglect. ExxonMobil set limits on BLM LGBTQ flags during Pride Month, which is coming up. Uh, That's in June. From the story, the company updated guidance on acceptable flags, which can be displayed outside offices, which include banning external position flags, including the pride flag, the Black Lives Matter flag, according to the new policy obtained by Bloomberg. Well, the rule does uh, permit a flag representing an LGBTQ employees group to be flown, but it can't prominently display the Exxon corporate logo, according to the report. Well, Exxon's move didn't go over well with members of the Exxon Pride Houston chapter, who are now refusing to represent the company at Houston's Pride celebration. A Washington examiner uh, weighs in, saying advocacy groups have been especially eager to display pro-LGBTQ paraphernalia ever since Florida GOP Governor DeSantis signed the Parental Rights and Education Bill uh, by opponents, uh, despite those words, um, don't say gay, appearing in the law. And by the way, there are flags for LGBT, transgender, bisexual, lesbian, pansexual, asexual, intersex, gender, queer, straight... Um, ally, straight, aromantic, not sure what aromantic is, but non-binary. There are separate flags for each one of those, so uh, they're limiting how many and which ones can be displayed at that facility. Well, Russia boasts about the new Satan-2 missile. The Independent reports that Russia has announced it will deploy its Satan-2 missile By the autumn, a day after Russian forces launched a missile strike on southern Ukraine, the city of Odessa, the recently tested missile can carry 10 or more nuclear warheads and decoys and can strike targets thousands of miles away, with experts warning that the missile could hit the UK as well as Europe and the US. Vladimir Putin claims it's impossible to defend the missile with current technology. Well, during a video briefing with defense officials, he said the new complex has the highest tactical and technical characteristics and is capable of overcoming all modern means of anti-missile defense. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding through some of uh, the weekend's headlines. We'll continue in a few moments. And then coming up in the second hour, uh, Reverend Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up this hour, we'll talk with Reverend Robert Chirico. I have to think about that. Uh, he's the author of The Economics of the Parables. It's a Regnery Gateway book, and he'll join us in the next couple of segments. Looking forward to that. We'll also look back on the death of Orrin Hatch, the longest serving Republican senator. 
passed away over the weekend. Well, Twitter shuts down ads challenging climate change consensus. That's likely to change since an agreement was struck earlier in the day with uh, Twitter and Elon Musk. But on Friday, Twitter said that it will no longer allow advertisers on its site who deny the scientific consensus on climate change. Citing the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's latest report, the media giant said that uh, to better serve uh, conversations about the issue, they would work to combat misinformation. Translated information we disagree with. ABC News said the announcement coinciding with Earth Day came hours before the European Union agreed upon a deal requiring big tech companies to vet their sites more closely for hate speech, disinformation and other harmful content. Orrin Hatch, the longest serving Republican senator in history, is dead at 88. We'll talk more about that later in the program. But Representative Tom Cotton points out that Orrin Hatch was a great mentor and an even better friend. He devoted his life to serving Utahns and will be missed dearly. The Associated Press points out that Orrin Hatch, who became the longest serving Republican senator in history as the, he represented Utah for more than four decades, died on Saturday at age 88. His death was announced in a statement from his foundation, which did not specify a cause. He launched the Hatch Foundation as he retired in 2019 and was replaced by Republican Mitt Romney. Twitter, as I mentioned, revisited their um, rejection of Elon Musk's offer, and it was announced uh, today that they have now accepted it. The $46.5 billion is getting a second look and has been accepted. And if the deal goes through, it will be uh, quite something. Twitter um, weighed in on the bid when it uh, reported first quarter earnings um, or will do so on Thursday, if not sooner. Uh, Twitter's response won't necessarily be black and white and could leave the door open for inviting other bidders. But again, that's uh, what the, the Wall Street Journal reported earlier in the day. And we learned later in the day that that uh, bid apparently has been accepted if uh, all things move forward. President Biden wants to make the military green. The primary job of any military should be the defense of the nation by the use of force to eliminate threats posed by foreign enemies. But the trouble is uh, the president is following in the footsteps of his old boss, Barack Obama, and sees the U.S. military as a cultural petri dish for the executive branch to foist ideology upon the American people. Case in point are the president's comments on Earth Day when he stated in the United States military, every vehicle is going to be climate friendly. Every vehicle. I mean it. We're spending billions of dollars to do it. Really, every vehicle. How about the goal that every vehicle will be designed to most effectively help the military meet its aim of taking the fight to the enemy with the express goal of prevailing? Well, the U.S. military is not a band of uh, eco-warriors. If such were the case, the U.S. Navy would still consist entirely of a fleet of sailing ships, albeit with no U.S. Navy or even United States to speak of. I'm not sure how this goal is even possible, but the president said, and I quoted him directly, really, several times. The South Carolina Supreme Court gave church properties back to the Episcopal Church. South Carolina Supreme Court has ruled in favor of the Episcopal Church in a property dispute. The ruling may be a win for the Episcopal Church, but it's also a loss for 14 congregations that 10 years ago broke away from the denomination over the national leadership's decision to ordain homosexual clergy and embrace the redefinition of marriage. In total, 29 South Carolina parishes broke away from the Episcopal Church and joined the Anglican Church in North America. 
The Episcopal Church then initiated a dispute and eventually a lawsuit over ownership of local church building properties. Back in 2014, the rector of the Church of the Good Shepherd in Charleston, Reverend Shea uh, Gallard, contended the buildings and the land are assets for gospel ministry. They were paid for by members of this parish, past and present. Present, rather, No outside group should determine their usage. This has implications for all hierarchical ownership of church properties and impacts the largest Protestant breakaway churches from the leftist Episcopal Church. We suppose this is one way to prevent dissent. Of course, while the Episcopal Church may have secured the physical church buildings, it is lost and continues losing those uh, who are following Jesus, who make up the body of Christ, the living church. Those who have left point out. President Biden talked to talked climate, not crime in the crime plagued Seattle over the weekend. U.S. diplomats returned to Ukraine with military aid among the issues. Uh, A Russian general announced plans to invade Moldova after Ukraine. You can read more about that in the National Review. Uh, He said the quiet part out loud. Russian collusion hoax investigator Durham issued trial subpoenas to the Clinton campaign and the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. Anthony Fauci says the courts should stay out of the CDC's way on mask mandates and with public concern about grooming kids. The American Library Association picked a president who pushes queering libraries. That's part of her statement um, accepting the position. Francis Macron wins a second term, defeating Le Pen in the first re-election win in 20 years. And by the way, Le Pen is seeking to gain the majority uh, so that there can be control in the uh, parliament. This week in history, 1792, the guillotine is first used to execute highwayman Nicolas Pelletier. 1831, the New York and Harlem Railway is incorporated in New York City. 1846, the Mexican-American War ignites as a result of disputes over claims to Texas boundaries. 1859, work begins on the Suez Canal in Egypt. 1898, the U.S. declares war on Spain. 1901, New York becomes the first state to require license plates for cars. The fee is $1, and you can put a plate on of virtually any material you choose. 1928, and by the way, those... um, License plates bore the initials of the car's owner. So mine would be G-E-R rather than, you know, the numbers in the so kind of interesting 1901. 1928, a seeing eye dog is used for the first time. 1945, delegates from about 50 countries meet in San Francisco to organize the United Nations. 1953, Dr. James D. Watson and Dr. Francis H.C. Crick suggest the double helix structure of DNA. 1957, operations begin at the first experimental sodium nuclear reactor. 1959, St. Lawrence Seaway is opened uh, to shipping. The waterway connects the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean. 1967, Colorado Governor John Love signs the first law legalizing abortion in the U.S. The law is limited to therapeutic abortions when it was unanimously agreed to by a panel of three physicians. Only three. 1971, the country of Bangladesh is established. 1974, Portuguese dictator Antonio Salazar is overthrown in a military coup. 1988, in Israel, John Ivan the Terrible Demyanyuk is sentenced to death as a Nazi war criminal. 
1990, the Sandinista rule ends in Nicaragua. 1998, First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton is questioned by Whitewater prosecutors on videotape about her work as a private lawyer for the failed savings and loan at the center of that investigation. Well, coming up, uh, we're going to talk with Robert Sirico. He is the author of The Economics of the Parables. It's a rather fascinating uh, look at familiar parables, but what we learn about inheritance and uh, stewardship from what Jesus taught. That's coming up in the next couple of segments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, millennia before the advent of streaming services or television, even YouTube, Jesus' parables have inspired and guided people of all cultures, of every age and background. In these strikingly original stories, my next guest, Reverend Robert Sirico, uh, proves that there is indeed something new to say about the world's most familiar stories. The book is titled The Economics of the Parables. It ignites a conversation about the eternal truths about God and man that can be gleaned from Jesus' stories about about our economic life, from wages to inheritances. While the book is an essential read for any person looking for spiritual wisdom applicable to daily economic life. Now, with inflation and a looming recession, these are lessons we would all do well to heed. While the Reverend Robert Sirico, he received his Master's of Divinity degree from the Catholic University of America, following undergraduate study at the University of Southern California and the University of London. During his studies and early ministry, he experienced a growing concern over the lack of training religious studies students receiving fundamental economic principles. Well, leaving them uh, poorly equipped to understand and address today's social problems. Well, as a result of these concerns, Father uh, Sirico, he co-founded the Acton Institute with uh, Chris Almond Maureen in 1990. He is president emeritus of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, retired pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and Sacred Heart Academy, a local parish school which uh, he co-founded as a Catholic classical Academy in 2013. He joins us now to talk about his uh, most recent book, The Economics of the Parables. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. I think when we read the parables of Jesus, we recognize there is an aspect to many of them that that might uh, read uh, the economics, but we may not fully glean his entire purpose. Talk a little bit about um, what inspired you to write this book uh, on the parables, focusing on the economics and the conversations you hope this will spark? Well, I, I suppose it, it comes from years of preaching. I mean, I'm a preacher, and so if you're a preacher, you've preached on the parables at some point, and of course lots of people know many of the parables, uh, but I also work in the field of economics. So uh, a lot of my work has been done through the Acton Institute, uh, talking about basic economic principles. So as I was preaching on the Gospels, I began to see these assumptions that Jesus has about things like private property, like uh, contracts and things along those lines. And I began, I, I suppose you could see this book as a, a, an effort at translating back and forth from the world of business and the world of theology. And what I found is that our logical understanding of the parables is enriched by our economic understanding of what the world was like. I'm not saying that the purpose of the parables was to teach economics. 
What I'm saying is that there's a presumption at the base of it that views merchants as good things, that even, uh, you know, luxury items have a place in the world. Uh, so it, it was really uh, eye-opening for me to study it in that depth with both of those disciplines going on at once. You write of your uh, your book, my effort is to detect the universal <clears throat> economic assumptions that play within the stories themselves, while at the same time acknowledging that the assumptions are not themselves the core intent, moral, or goal of the parables, and that from time to time Jesus turns such assumptions on their head to make his point. He makes several points in the process of telling a story to uh, to teach a, a principle to his hearers. Yes. Uh, I mean, of course, the parables themselves, the, 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 uh, the literary form of a parable is so intriguing because you're telling a story and you're leaving certain things unsaid in the story, which really invites the listener into it more deeply. But you're also able to speak to a wide variety of an audience so that if you're telling a parable, a child can understand it and a scientist can Mm -hmm. understand it and everything in between. And we've all experienced this, you know, just in seeing how captivating the parables are to even to children. And yet they're profound truths that are coming across in them. That's also what gives them their uh, enduring power. You said that right at the beginning, how now 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this. I mean, Jardine, wouldn't it be wonderful to think that 50 years after you're gone, people are going to be listening to your radio interviews and say, what what great insight. (laughs) None of us really think that we're going to be remembered at that level years and years after we're gone. We're talking 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about the parables of Jesus. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing thing. Now, how does your book fit into your work of educating people on the theology uh, or how theology relates to economics? And uh, again, this is such a an important topic. We would do well to glean everything Scripture has to say, and particularly the parables. Sure. Well, uh, let's begin with uh, my definition of economics, because economics, somebody once called it the dismal science. Uh, our eyes kind of glaze over when we hear anybody, they're going to tell us about percentages and math and equations and uh, all of the rest of it, use use very specific terminology to refer to things. Uh, and yet what economics is, in my understanding of it, is almost inevitable when you live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world that's bound by space and time. We come into existence at one point, and we go out of life at another point. We are confronted by the scarcity of the resources that we have available to us in addition to time. And yet all of this is the world into which Jesus Christ came. He entered human form, really, substantially. He becomes a human being in everything, the Scripture says, other than sin. He's like us. So he gets tired. He has to worry about food. He has to worry about fishing and productivity. And he uses all of these metaphors from the world in which he was living. Productivity, you know, uh, production, uh, agriculture, uh, all of these different kinds of things. And what all of that does, in the same way that Jesus Christ reveals the fullness of God in the middle of a material world by becoming incarnate and one of us, I think that the economics can reveal to us something about God. If it does nothing more 
then tell us something about our limitation and the fact that we need to orient ourselves to something higher than this world. That's something. But also, inscribed in the human heart is this almost uh, quenchless desire that we each have. We all desire more than we can ever attain. Even when we attain something that we wanted very much, we find ourselves desiring more. And the problem is that many people end up trying to fulfill that desire in ways that are detrimental to our spirituality, to our humanity. And what all of this can teach us is that we have to have a heart for God because that's what's missing. We desire eternity because we're made for eternity. Mm. Well, one of the most familiar parables and one that you cover in the economics of the parables is the uh, parable of the talents. Uh, We think we understand the basic idea that we're supposed to be good stewards over what God has entrusted to us. But what are some of the economic presumptions of this parable and what is the lesson that we should glean from it? Well, yes, I mean, this is one of the rich ones, one of the things that people remember uh, about parables in general. Uh, Let me just point out one insight into this. As as I was reading it, both with my economic hat on and my pastor's hat on, is the perception of the third man who receives the one talent and buries it and then complains to the master. And his perception of who the master is tells us a whole lot. And it, it has both a kind of moral dimension to it, but it also has an economic dimension. He says to the master, well, you know, I knew that you were a hard man, sowing where you have not reaped, uh, or reaping where you have not sowed, and gathering where you have not scattered. In other words, you haven't planted, and yet you can gather. Uh, and, and so I did the safest thing I knew. I buried my talent. Now, that tells us something both on the spiritual level, because this man is talking to the master who is the image of Christ, and his resentment against the graciousness of God in entrusting to us our talents when we fail to utilize that we, what we've been given. But it also gives us an economic insight, because really, when I read that, I thought, this is exactly the attitude that uh, socialists have about economic productivity. They think that people who uh, have uh, are entrepreneurs who are investing in things uh, somehow gather where they have not scattered, that they're getting an advantage having put nothing into it, or where they have uh, reaped where they haven't sown, that there's some injustice that's going on. And and the way this servant speaks to the master uh, tells me something. Also, the converse of that is to think about these other two uh, servants who are entrusted and who risk. And every action of productivity involves some kind of risk. And whatever way in which this is another thing about the talents, we don't know all the details about how did they make that money? We're really not sure. Uh, And that's what enables us to kind of dream and speculate and apply the lessons that are learned in our own circumstances. But however they did it, they did it by risking. Just the way the master risked in entrusting his talents, because uh, while the one didn't produce anything, he just hid it, 
it was a risk for the master to give him that in the first place because he could have lost it. And these other men could have lost the investment that they had been given. And so um, I think this is, this is part of the real challenge and, and the gift that we have uh, in, in, the, um, uh, in the parables of the talent. We're talking with the Reverend Robert Sirico. I get that right. The book is titled The Economics of the Parables, and it is published by Regnery. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, the book we're talking about, The Economics of the Parables. And the Reverend Robert uh, Sirico is the author. He pulls back the veil of modernity to reveal the timeless economic wisdom of the parables. Thirteen simple but very profound stories. It includes the parable of the talents, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the uh, laborers in the vineyard, the unjust steward, and the prodigal. They're all filled with lessons about caring for the poor, for stewardship wealth, uh, passing down inheritances, and much, much more. The economics of the parables. Again, the book published by Regnery. Now, in writing these stories, you challenge us to think perhaps more broadly about uh, the message, the messages that Jesus is teaching as he's delivering these parables, not only for the hearers that are present with him at the time, but for generations to follow who would read those parables and look for wisdom in how to conduct uh, conduct themselves. Let's talk about one of these uh, parables, um, the uh, the laborers in the vineyard, where, again, the, the subject of fairness is um, is brought up. What do we learn from that parable, the laborers in the vineyard, uh, that would teach us something about economics? Well, you know, right off the bat, uh, what I was thinking as I was kind of looking at the book again, I, I wish that it was a little later that I was writing it, because what I would have brought in was the whole confrontation that we are having to this day of the shortage of labor. I mean, we're, mm. we're all experiencing this in restaurants and everywhere we're going, we, the whole... Uh, supply chain disruption, a lot to do with people not being available for work. And isn't this exactly what the master or the owner of that vineyard confronts when he sees a harvest in front of him that he could lose or could lose a substantial portion of it? And what would be the effects of that? Just imagine for a moment the effects of the loss of that harvest from an economic perspective. Well, it would have been the loss to his own estate, first and foremost. But then it would have also been the loss of the supply of the goods that were produced in that vineyard for all of those who depended upon them. So if the harvest uh, was only, let's say, a half, then in order to compensate for the loss, the price would have had to have gone up. So you have the whole question of supply and demand that plays into a loss of harvest. This gives us a sense of the urgency of this owner of the vineyard in trying to find laborers to go into the vineyard. And then we come to the workers themselves. They're hired at various stages during the day. And I think what's very important here, and this is where the moral question comes in, at each stage, he agrees with them upon a certain wage. Even in the middle of the day and late in the day, when he goes and he hires these workers to just work for a few more hours, he says, I'll pay you whatever is just. You just go and and do this work for me and I'll just pay you. And they all agree to this. So that it's a mutually beneficial contract on the part of both of them. Now you can imagine that those at the beginning of the day 
who were looking for work were glad that they had a day's worth of work. And the amount that he was paying was the usual daily wage. But those later in the day were especially grateful because they hadn't worked all day. And they thought, you know, I'm going to have to go home to my family. And I'm not going to have anything to show for the day. So they go and maybe they think they're going to get half the day's wage, but that's better than nothing. And then, of course, the great reversal takes place. And this sense of reversal, this dramatic reversal, uh, it doesn't just occur in this gospel. I'm thinking it also occurs in The Rich Man and Lazarus, which is another one that has uh, real implications. But in this one, the last shall become first and the first shall become last. The master, the, the owner of the harvest, says, let's, let's uh, pay those who came last. And they're paid the usual wage. Now, the other guys are standing around thinking, well, if they've got the usual wage, then we're going to get more. And they come and they get the same. And here's where the moral lesson uh, becomes so clear. Their presumption, their perspective on the part of the laborer, or I'm sorry, on the part of the uh, owner of the vineyard changes. Whereas they saw him as their benefactor, they now see him as their enemy. And he says one of the most astute lines, and again, this refutes the whole Marxist collectivist uh, concept of economics. He said, did we not agree on the, on the wage before you worked? Yes. And didn't I pay you that? Yes. Am I not free to do what I want with my own property? Yes. And of course, as I say, the purpose of the, the parable is not to teach us about economics. It's to teach us about God and salvation. And of course, what does this say to us? It says to us that salvation can't be purchased, that we don't really earn it, that we, we come to Christ and he offers us his grace. And if someone comes later, you know, there's the, the story of the prodigal son, which is also, by the way, uh, in, the, in this book, mm-hmm. uh, where the older son is resentful of the younger son being received back. And it's this kind of attitude that you see here. We see it on the cross with the good thief next to Jesus. And Jesus puts him into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you know, he didn't do anything. All he did at the last moment was say, remember me. And so, you know, it's, it's this weaving of these economic presuppositions, these basic things, and the, the truths of the kingdom of heaven that spring out from it that I find so uh, exhilarating. Let me ask you in the few minutes that we have left, what does the scripture tell us about distributing inheritance? I think parents are often concerned about how to uh, distribute or to pass along um, their wealth without harming uh, future generations. Does the scripture teach us, are there parables that teach us about uh, inheritance that might be helpful? Well, I think the one of the most, one of the first things uh, about inheritance uh, is not the economic question, but the moral question of the formation of the, the child, uh, the, the son or the daughter, and how they are going to handle their responsibilities. That's the first and foremost. In the story of the, um, the prodigal son, of mm-hmm. course, we see these two sons, uh, both of whom have a distorted perception of property. The young son, it's very obvious how distorted his perception is, because he just wants it and he runs. Uh, and the father is 
hands-offness with him. He says, oh, you, you want the property? Here it is. Let's see what you're going to do with it. And the second son, though, has a similar view to the younger son. We think the, you know, the older son is, he's at home and he's toiling for his dad. Is he a loyal and wonderful son? But really, he's only seeing his father uh, in terms of the property that the father is given, because he says to him in the end, you know, I've been with you all this time. You've never even given me, you never let me have fun with my friends and party with my friends. And now you're killing the fatted calf for, for your son who's wasted all your money. Uh, and he sees his father in material terms, in the same way that the younger son saw the father. And of course, this is really the, the story, not of the prodigal son. This is the, the story of the loving father, because he, he loves equally both of his sons and invites them to come back. Both of them are invited to come back. The young son, when he sees him and runs down the road to greet him, but also the older son at the end, he invites him to come in to the party. Now, we don't know if he does or not. And that's that's one of those open-ended things that make the parable so vibrant. He says, now you come in. I want to reconcile you and your brother together. So I think in terms of the principles, I've spoken to many people who have, you know, estates. Some of them say, you know, I'm not, I'm leaving my children a certain share of the estate, but not enough to disable them. Because if they live off of me, then they don't ever have the capacity to produce for themselves and to know the dignity of production in the way that I learned it, you know, the, the, the benefactor, the father, the mother uh, who produced the wealth in the first place. This is a real problem in philanthropy because we see people who live big, leave big estates with certain intentions for the use of those resources, like, say, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, uh, the True Charitable Trust. Those founders who invested that money and made the money had a very different philosophy than the people who are administering those foundations today. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a real responsibility that, uh, that wealthy people have, or really anybody has, in terms of how you can enable or disable the people you're going to leave the money to. Once again, we've been talking with the Reverend Robert Sirico. The book is The Economics of the Parables, and you gleaned so much from them. I really appreciated uh, the, the depth to which you went to help us recognize that aspect of these timeless uh, parables. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. And for people who are interested in learning more about um, the Acton Institute, what's the best way for them to connect? Uh, Acton.org. Acton.org, and they can go in there. There's just a whole bunch of material that we have at every level, uh, including films, including books, essays, conferences, and the, the like. So we'd love to have them. And the book is available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, the Reverend Robert Sirico, The Economics of the Parables. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Orrin Hatch, the towering Utah lawmaker who was the longest serving Republican senator in U.S. history, died on Saturday. 
He was 88 years old. He was first elected back in 1977 when Jimmy Carter was president. He spent 42 years in the upper chamber. He held several influential committee chairmanships, including atop the Senate Judiciary Committee committee rather, and the Senate Finance Committee. He also served as the Senate's president pro tempore, the chamber's highest ceremonial role, and briefly sought his party's presidential nomination, you might recall, in 2000. Well, Hatch's death was announced by the Hatch Foundation. It's an organization that he founded. Senator Orrin G. Hatch personified the American dream. The group's executive director, Matt Sangren, said in a statement, born the son of a carpenter, the plastic a plaster lather. He overcame the poverty of his youth to become a United States senator, end quote. Well, he highlighted the senator's work on issues ranging from tax and trade to religious liberty and health care saying Senator Hatch touched the hearts of countless individuals, and I know I speak for all of them when I say he will be dearly missed. Well, on the Finance Committee, Senator Hatch played a key role shepherding the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, America's last major tax reform through the Senate into law. Over 750 bills he sponsored or co-sponsored eventually became law, 750, including the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and State Children's Health Insurance Program Act. He retired in 2018. He was succeeded by Senator Mitt Romney. The Hatch Foundation noted that when he retired, Hatch held the distinction of having passed more legislation into law than any other senator alive at the time. He also played a leading role in the conservative movement as a co-founder of the Federalist Society in 1982, an organization created to spread conservative ideas in the legal community. It has since become... One of the most influential foundations in the country with sources um, uh, from all over the country and scores of its members holding top roles in government and federal judiciary, including six of the Supreme Court's uh, current nine members. By the time Hatch retired from politics, Washington Post magazine noted that he had reached an unprecedented peak of power and uh, influence. Hatch also was a musician playing the piano, the violin and organ and recording several songs uh, for the church he attended, the Latter-day Saints and popular labels. His song Souls Along the Way was featured in uh, Ocean's 12, while the song Heal Our Land was performed by George W. Bush's second inauguration in 2005. Frank Zappa also recorded a song with uh, with Hatch uh, named Orrin Hatch on Skis. So he was a rather interesting and colorful character in many ways. He died on Saturday at 88. Uh, now that he, um, I should say, now that he is gone, many are looking back over his legacy. Think um, about the fact that Orrin Hatch retired without having overstayed his welcome. No one ever had to look at the um, visionary from Utah and mutter, this guy should have called uh, called it quits years ago. As his hometown paper, the Salt Lake City-based uh, Desert News writes, Hatch considered running for an eighth term in the Senate at the urging of then-President Donald Trump, whom he steadfastly supported. Health issues, failing eyesight in particular, caused Hatch to decide not to run. He announced his decision in uh, his long-term Senate office wearing a pair of blue boxing gloves. I was an amateur boxer in my youth, he said, and I have brought the uh, that fighting spirit with me to Washington. But every good fighter knows when to hang up the gloves. And he did just that. And hang up the gloves he did. But Orrin Hatch, the son of a Pittsburgh-area plasterer, was remarkably effective throughout his 42 years in the Senate. Well, the most lasting and noteworthy of Hatch's accomplishments was his uh, determined effort to reshape the American judiciary, and not only as a member of 
and one-time chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The National Review noted of the then-senator. He also played a leading role in the conservative movement as the co-founder of the Federalist Society, the organization created to spread conservative ideas. Hatch grew up in poverty, one of eight children, two of whom didn't survive infancy, and one of whom he much admired his uh, much-admired older brother, Jesse, a B-24 nose gunner, was killed when his plane was shot down over Austria just three months before VE Day. Nevertheless, Hatch became the first in his family to graduate from college, earning a B.A. at Brigham Young University in 59, then a law degree three years later at Pittsburgh before moving to Utah in 69 in 1976 during a tough post-Watergate cycle for Republicans. Hatch won election to the U.S. Senate in his first attempt, knocking off three-term incumbent Democrat Frank Moss at the time. Well, Hatch himself was on the short list of potential Supreme Court nominees for Ronald Reagan. And while on the Judiciary Committee, he played a central role in 15 Supreme Court confirmation hearings, including his noble and stalwart defense of Clarence Thomas. Hatch had a big heart and an abundance of compassion, but he didn't suffer fools. More than one journalist learned this the hard way. As the editor of the Wall Street Journal notes, Hatch was among the conservatives who rose to power to correct the Democratic failure of the 1960s and 70s. They're leaving us now, year by year, but their work restored the country's military strength and economic vigor. We owe it to their legacy to do it again, end quote. Indeed, as the Desert News points out, the National Taxpayer Union recognized Hatch for his fiscal responsibility And he was dubbed by others Mr. Free Enterprise, Guardian of Small Business, and Mr. Constitution. He was also dubbed Patriot, and deservedly so. In 2018, President Trump awarded the newly retired Utah Senator the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Hatch was a true warrior for our country, for liberty, and for his beloved state of Utah, the former president said in a statement on Saturday. He was as wise as he was kind and as tough as he was smart. He loved America, and his contributions to our country were tremendous. His legacy will surely live on through the many lives he impacted. May God bless Orrin Hatch. You're listening to Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a 22-hour break. We'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.